so our our schedule is well (laughs) (laughs) schedule the word schedule is so triggering (laughs) hi everyone this is margie chuang and welcome to moms who build a podcast about moms who build things that bring them joy I learn about what inspires moms to start their own journeys, what keeps them motivated, and what it's really like to build things while being a parent. This episode features Hannah Levy. Hannah is a content strategist who has spent the last 12 years helping brands build communities and connect with their customers through creative storytelling. She specializes in high-impact content campaigns that maximize engagement with a brand's audience. Hannah has worked across several industries, but has always returned to healthcare because she believes that understanding what's going on with our bodies and getting high quality, affordable care are basic human rights. Hannah is currently leading content marketing at Modern Fertility, a woman's reproductive healthcare company focused on making fertility information more accessible for women everywhere. Hannah is also dedicated to supporting underrepresented groups, something that she works toward as a community manager for Tech Ladies, a community of 100,000 members and growing that connects women, trans, and non-binary folks with the best opportunities in tech. Without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Hannah Levy. Hannah, welcome to the show. So great to be here. So great to have you. I'm really excited that we were able to make time today to chat. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Very busy, but it's a beautiful day and trying to feel grateful for everything that's going on, despite yeah. the world, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to start by asking you about you've worked across a number of industries. Can you tell us about your career journey and what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So As you know, I specialize in content marketing and editorial content for startups, in particular in the healthcare space, although I have experience across a number of different industries, as you mentioned. But taking a really far, far step back, originally when I was growing up and in high school, I always wanted to be a reporter, specifically an investigative reporter. So I went to college for journalism. I went to Boston University, enrolled there in 2004, and loved it, loved writing, loved the media industry, but had a complete panic attack and meltdown in 2005 in the middle of college when I realized just like, A, how many loans I would have, and B, the fact that newspapers and traditional media companies were all kind of like shuttering down. I kind of recalibrated. I ended up moving home going to community college and then reapplying to the UC school system because I live in California and got into Berkeley and just decided to make the shift to traditional, like, or not necessarily a, a, a journalism school. I just got my undergrad degree in communications and just like really tried to figure out like, what do I want to do with my career if I'm not necessarily going to be a reporter? So yeah, I, I kind of like interned and, and tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And I initially got a job in San Francisco working at a media company that supported first responders, but they really blended like media and product. It was kind of like brand journalism. We wrote a lot of educational content for firefighters and paramedics, police officers, but also served up product recommendations um, alongside that. And so really figuring out like, how do we educate an audience, but also engage with them and make money at the same time. And from there being in the San Francisco Bay area, I moved into startups. So that's when I kind of decided I wanted to focus on supporting early stage startups and 
I became really interested in healthcare. My husband founded a healthcare startup and he was my then boyfriend at the time and just really got me interested in the industry. And I, I just really, I think about what about healthcare really interested me was this idea of information asymmetry. So this notion that there is a group of people who don't know a lot about their own health or, you know, even in personal finance, you know, things about money. And then there's a group of people who hold all the power. Um, and so how do we support and advocate for consumers? And how do we get people who don't know enough to make decisions? How do we empower them to learn, educate them, and then support them in that process? And that's really where, you know, that area really interests me and using content to educate, inform, and to get people to really understand everything that they need to make decisions with all the data in hand was particularly compelling for me. So I kind of like focused in that area, worked in healthcare, went into B2B as well. And then, yeah, decided that I really wanted to focus my career on supporting women. There's kind of a long story there. I'm sure we'll get into that. But landed at Modern Fertility, where I'm at today, doing content marketing and editorial content, where I'm focused on supporting women and non-binary folks through their fertility experience, learning more about reproductive health, connecting with other people who are going through similar experiences, and really educating them about their bodies. What I love about and admire about your journey is that every time it seems like you entered a particular space, it seems like you were very thoughtful in thinking about where is this industry now? Where will it be in X amount of years? How is that affecting me today? And how will that affect me moving forward? And it sounds simple, the idea of it, but in actuality, the execution is really hard. And you had mentioned you moved back home, went to community college, then applied to UCs, which isn't traditional, you know, way of doing things. Yeah, it's super non-traditional. And I will say it was probably like, it was very strange experience and very difficult at the time. It felt like I was taking a lot of steps backwards. And I think that's how I feel throughout my career. I think in certain decision points, it often can feel like I'm taking steps backwards or undoing things when actually it's what's propelling me forwards and getting me closer to my goal eventually. And, and just realizing that it's all like this iterative process and being open to taking non-traditional paths to get to where you need to go is, yeah, that's definitely a lesson I learned early. It's, it's a great lesson. It's like that, take a breath, things will be okay. You don't yeah. realize it at the time, right? But it'll be okay. Well, and, and also not having to really answer, you know, to people's questions about like, why are you doing this? Or like, does it feel like you're, I don't know, ruining your college experience? Yeah. I, I, at the time, I got a lot of questions about my decision to leave BU and move home. But in the end, it worked out for me. And I think that's also something to consider. Retrospectively, it's always easier to say it all worked out in the end. But when you're going through it, it can feel pretty painful. For those who aren't familiar with Modern Fertility, and you also work with a community called Tech Ladies, and it's actually more than it's an, and it's an amazing organization. Can you introduce us to what each company does. And we can start with modern fertility since you sure. just talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So my professional background right now, and then kind of like the passion project and the, the yeah. community that I support on the side and in the off hours. So modern fertility is a reproductive health company that makes personalized fertility information more accessible earlier in life. So our first product was an at-home fertility hormone test. And we have now recently launched ovulation tests, pregnancy tests, as well as an iOS app that's free and that integrates with our ovulation test experience. And Modern Fertility is more than just products too. We also have a free supportive community and educational content 
course, you know, I'm a huge fan of it's all baked in. And it's all really for people who are trying for kids or not. It's really all about empowering people with ovaries to get information and insight into their fertility and reproductive health before they think about kids. And even if they don't want kids at all, just to get more insight into their bodies. The other big component about modern fertility that I, I really love and I'm obsessed with is this idea of research. Pushing fertility research forward is really part of our mission and at the core of what we're doing here. It, fertil- there's not a lot of fertility research out there. It's a, there's a lot of emerging you know, studies and, and clinical information that's being passed down. But a lot of the traditional research in the fertility space is focused on infertility, people who are already diagnosed with infertility or struggling to get pregnant or conceive. Studies on populations of average people with ovaries and, and understanding the steps prior to trying to conceive and how that impacts someone's health is really what we're all about. And so that's, that's just a really exciting component of what we're doing. So that's modern fertility. And Tech Ladies is also all about supporting women and non-binary folks, which is really nice because the two play really well together. Tech Ladies is a community of over 100,000 women, trans women, non-binary people, as I mentioned, that's all in a community group as well as a free job board. We also have a founding membership component to the organization that is paid tier of membership that is more like supercharged networking, access to educational material for free members only events um, and other curated perks. But overall, it's a free job board for anyone who's looking to break into tech. um, And as well, we partner with companies who are looking to diversify their pipeline. The founding members I saw, I got an email notification this morning. The application process is open. We open it every, I think it's like every few months. And so there's a small window of time in which you can apply and join and then it closes up. And, and the, way, the reason why we do that is so that we can kind of like go deeper in the relationship building and develop really more like one-to-one intimate relationships in, in our founding membership group. And then we add a bunch of new members and then get to know them over the period of a few months and then open it up and open it up. So. Yeah. yeah, that's it just made me think of the in the in classroom setting, the teacher to student ratio type of thing. It's always good to have that one-on-one attention. Circling back to modern fertility for for just a little bit. You had an aha moment which you talked to me a little bit about over the phone a couple of weeks ago. Can you speak to that moment? Yeah, before I joined Modern Fertility. So I had as, you know, I've been kind of like going about my career. I actually I got a new job new job right after becoming a mom. Um, and I was working in personal finance um, and really enjoying it. It was a totally new industry for me. But I was doing tech ladies work on the side. I was having all of these conversations with you know friends and family members about my career and kind of, you know, after you become a mom, you just kind of get this strange energy around optimizing your time. At least that was my experience. And if I was like, okay, I'm going to be away from my kid for 40 hours a week and I really want to keep my career, you know, hot and like not take a step back necessarily, but I really want to make sure that I am getting the most out of it and enjoying it if it is going to be a focus and take priority and hold space for my career as well as holding space for my family and my kid. So I I think like after having my daughter and just thinking about my career holistically, I started thinking about like, how can I pair what I want to do in my free time and what I want to spend my like nights and weekend hours on, but also get paid for it. And I had been working with the Tech Ladies organization since 2015, and it was always kind of a, a side hustle, something that I supported and worked on in the side. Full disclosure, you know, I did get paid for my work with Tech Ladies, but it was definitely more of like something that I just kind of 
did as I could a couple hours a week. And because it's a completely bootstrapped organization, there wasn't really space for full-time work for me at least. Yeah. I was just really thinking about it and, and having all these conversations. And I had lunch with a friend and she was just like, well, you know, you need to figure out what your personal brand like mission statement is, right? What are your objectives? And what is your personal mission statement? Almost like if you're working for a company, what's the mission statement? And she's like, for you, it seems really clear that it's all about advocating for women and underrepresented groups. So if that's your focus, how can you just find an org that you could get paid for your full-time job and do that? And when I got connected to the co-founder of Modern Fertility, it just like all really clicked for me that working for a company that was specifically focused on educating and empowering people with ovaries was something that I needed to put really high up on my list of career options. And the more I learned about the company and the founders and the team and the opportunity there, yeah, that was my aha moment. I was just like, I'm all in. My personal mission statement, how can everything I do, whether it's personal or professional, be in service to that? I've been using the term personal mission ever since you introduced it to me because I, I never thought of it in, in that way at all. And it's just something so powerful and it's internally, it makes you have a goal for yourself mm -hmm. and how to pair that with your career, like you mentioned. Yeah. And it's nice because like, if you can't devote your full-time work to it, I know a lot of people don't have the luxury of that, a luxury of options. It's at least something that you can figure out how to explore if you have free time at all, or just in, even in the one-to-one -one relationships. So like for a really long time, I was feeding off of how I supported women one-to-one, -one, right? Doing mentorship calls, volunteering my time, doing work for tech ladies and getting that out of it. And obviously if I had not had an opportunity to work with Modern Fertility, I think I could have just kept chugging along in the off hours and knowing that that was my North Star, I think made it easier to jump on opportunities because it's really scary, right? It's scary to quit your job. It's scary to join an early stage startup, right? There's risk inherently with that. It's scary to, to think about shifting anything, especially when you're a mom. And at the time when I joined Modern Fertility, I had, gosh, how old was she? She just had turned two. So I guess not necessarily a new baby, but yeah, it still felt new to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely your personal mission to help and elevate women from an outsider's perspective, me being the outsider. I reached out to Modern Fertility in hopes that I could get an interview for the podcast. And Kira, who I believe is in charge of communications at Modern Fertility, responded and she said, I'm going to put you in touch with Hannah. She's extremely accomplished and hardworking, all while being an awesome mom to her daughter. And then when you and I connected, we had a great rapport from, from the beginning. You're just so easy Aww. to talk to and yeah, and, and get along with. And I was mentioning on our call that I was thinking about doing a spinoff show called Founded by Women. And you immediately said, oh my gosh, tell me when you start that because I have to introduce you to Allison who is the founder of Tech Ladies. She started with just like 20 women at a coffee shop talking about working in tech. And now it's grown to a community of 100,000. That blew me away from my perspective, you know, asking these women who I've never met before. I'm just looking to see if there would be anyone who would be willing to do an interview on the podcast and having just this immediate reaction, a positive reaction to that. And it just shows you how empowering that is for other women. And so the lesson I took from literally within days of an interaction with the Modern Fertility team and the Tech Ladies team was that this North Star of 
inspiring other women, paying it forward, even saying something like, you know, I may not be a right fit for you, but you know who would be? And pointing that person in a different direction is just such a uplifting personal mission. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, what you're doing is so important and so wonderful. And just like the opportunity to even chat with you and be on the show is I feel very humbled and grateful. And also I think what you're speaking to is really this idea of expanding networks and supporting and elevating other people. And that's something that I've just seen happen more and more, which is really, it, it makes me, it gives me a lot of optimism and hope, but it's something that historically, especially in tech, just wasn't happening a lot. And I, I think that when you have a system that's built up with a lot of white men, the networks all look and feel the same. And I think tech ladies in particular started because there's this gender networking gap. And the idea was how can we connect women at all stages of their careers to other women at all stages so that they can find or give mentorship opportunities so that there is always those folks in the back of our minds that we are like, oh, hey, if someone asks me if I know someone who's an engineer or who's in growth marketing or who you know is a designer, I feel like I always can have options to send them. That happens a lot. If you gain access to certain networks, like if you go to business school or if you're a certain like privileged class and it happens less for underrepresented folks. And I think that's really like what where Tech Ladies shines. Personally, my eyes were open to that when I started in tech, but I couldn't figure out how to overcome it, right? I couldn't figure out how to like really break into it. And I think, I mean, this may be really gendered, so I'll just speak from my own personal experience. I have trouble asking for help. I have trouble asking for things and I have trouble asking people for their time. And when you add all of that together, it really it makes it really difficult to know how to get started. It really makes it difficult to get intros. And so that is something that I try to do as much as possible. And, and I try to like mirror behavior when I see it too. You touched upon something. So I grew up in an environment where speaking up or even just expressing your general feelings or thoughts was not supported. If you couple that with the honestly reality of the world, and being someone who is, you know, the un underrepresented voices, so hard. Who do you even reach out to? Like, who do you talk to? How do you find people to discuss your feelings with? And then let alone add work to that. Yeah, it must be really hard. I mean, full disclosure, right? For folks who are listening, I am a white cisgender female working in tech. So even the fact that I am a woman, there's like a slight disadvantage, but I am a white woman. I come from an upper middle class background. I did go to a, eventually go to a great UC school, although I, I don't really lean on that network, interestingly. And yeah, I didn't really understand privilege and what that gave me, the opportunities that it gave me until starting to work in the San Francisco Bay Area. And like, you know, one good job led to warm intros for another good job and people who I met I've, I've gotten so many jobs through friends and friends of friends and old managers. And when you lack that network, it makes it incredibly difficult to access. And just listening to people in the tech ladies community, just listening to other people's experience has made me really empathetic. I don't know what it's like to experience that because I didn't go through it myself, but it's been really powerful to, to hear and then to try to fill gaps a, as much as possible. So yeah, I just have to disclose that because it's important to me to not feel like I'm coming from necessarily a place where there was a ton of uphill battle for me to access certain roles or, or opportunities. But I know a lot of people are in that place right now. And I just, I think it's really important to listen to their experiences. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. What are some common things that the tech ladies community has shared about their feelings, concerns, hopes on a day-to-day personal level or within the workplace? Oh, gosh. Oh, we're going to open up lots of cans of worms here. So let's just get into it. I mean, first of all, first of all, I will say the level of toxicity in any work environment, but in particular in tech, has been made very clear in the community. Just lack of HR or HR only serving the needs of the business, harassment, retaliation, discrimination, really just uncomfortable situations that are gray areas where there's not a lot of legality or legal protection for the workers and feeling taken advantage of. Things like lack of salary transparency, right? Lack of data on salaries. So not knowing how to advocate or negotiate for yourself, especially if you're just getting started. Lack of mentorship is a big one. Lack of access to mentors or sponsors to help being the only woman or LGBTQ person on a team, especially I don't come from an engineering background, but especially in that area has has talked about a lot on tech ladies. I could go on. Yeah, those are, it's heartbreaking to, to hear about it. Can you speak to how tech ladies makes people feel safe to openly talk about these topics or issues and still be able to connect with each other, still be able to have the sense of community, you know, that that openness that I, I see you, I hear you, I'm with you. Yeah, it's a really good question. So in the founding member group in particular, we're built on, a, our, on our own community platform. So there is a little bit more of a feeling of safety. The main Tech Ladies group, the, the one that's open and free is built off of Facebook. So it's connected to people's Facebook accounts. So there is a little bit, I think people do feel a little bit more like sensitive around that, depending on the Facebook account that they're connecting. Some people have like alias accounts. So a couple of things that we put in place to support this. One is just like really clear code of conduct and a zero tolerance policy for any sort of hate or racism from day one, just like having that really clear code of conduct and also posting guidelines. So figuring out you know what types of posts we're going to be able to prioritize and support. We also started a anonymous asks process where anyone can email me. I'm the one who, who manages the anonymous asks that you can email me and I just use my Facebook account to post their asks anonymously. And this really helps if people A, have coworkers who are in the group with a group of thousands of people. It's, you know, tech is still pretty small. So people may have coworkers in the group and for fear of retaliation, not be posting under their name. So that's been really huge, I think, is just giving people an outlet so that they can seek crowdsourced knowledge and wisdom without having to raise their hand and say, hey, this happened to me. I also think some of the actions we've taken in the past kind of build trust. We have a zero tolerance policy for partners on the job board, as well as partners that we've done events with. So if there, it comes out that there has been some sort of harassment, lawsuit, or scandal, or if we find out that people who are part of Tech Ladies have had really toxic experiences with certain companies, like those, we, we have stopped working with companies in the past because of that. And I think seeing that happen, not frequently, <laughs> but uh, a couple of times, I think builds trust that we take action. And I think having that point of view in Tech Ladies is really important to, to build trust. And also just like acknowledging where there are blind spots and acknowledging that especially group moderators and the folks who are, who are running the channels don't have all the answers. And we're all kind of stumbling through this and we can all learn and get better and taking feedback into account and changing policies and, and changing our approach to 
the community and running the community when we have sought feedback and gotten feedback, I think is really important. So yeah, it's, it's just like, it's kind of an ongoing process. There is never any, we did it. We accomplished it. We're like running this perfectly. It's constantly tweaking and seeing if this works or, or not and how people feel about it. And at some point, right, communities end up, you have to hand it over to the community. You have to figure out like, what do they want? That's where I think part of the magic happens in community is making sure you're listening to the members and not just building for what you want or what you think, but what is being identified and what's being surfaced. Yeah, that's super, super important to ask the questions, what's working, what's not working, what do you want more of? And then figuring out from the the perspective of the company, okay, so what should we roll out first? What should we test first? The trust is such a huge thing because when you make the zero tolerance policy public, it makes it so that other companies are aware that, by the way, this is really important to our company and we hold everyone accountable. And when you are a part of a community, it's something that is very vulnerable. If you're going to put yourself out there, if you're going to tell someone your story, you want to feel safe and validated. So yeah, yeah, I think that's awesome that Tech Ladies uh, has just been so thoughtful and admitting like, oh, we may have made a mistake here, but we, we saw it and now we're going to figure out how to improve or taking suggestions from the community itself. Yeah. And one thing that went a long way when we were just getting started was we created this kind of unofficial policy around if you're like making an ask of the community to also make an offer. So it's kind of like get Mm. give and get. And so that really helped, I think. So people and prioritizing people who were making those offers, I think early on, because communities can often feel like just a lot of people asking questions and trying to navigate and get mind share from the group. But if no one is giving back, people get really you know, burned out on the community or, or like burned out of the feed. And so that's where when we identified community members who were making offers for time or, uh, hey, like I'm willing, if anyone's breaking into marketing and wants to pick my brain for 15 minutes, I'm making myself available and just rewarding those folks and recognizing them and giving them space and supporting them too to kind of create super users of the community, if you will. And also the one-to-one relationship building that happens behind the scenes. This happens a lot at Modern Fertility too, which is one of the reasons why I fell in love with the company when I met with Carly, the co-founder having like this community first approach to everything that they do. So much work goes into building one-on-one relationships with folks. That is a lot of invisible work. And Raina, our head of community at Modern Fertility, spends so much of her time talking to community members one-to-one. And that's something that I also tried to carve out time for. I When I was doing a lot of community moderation at Tech Ladies, is just like connecting with people and Facebook Messenger, talking to them and, and listening. And that's up on the community and people can't access that publicly, but it's happening to help fuel the, the channel. Is that your approach to allyship, Hannah? The one-to-one? Uh, yeah, well, well, I guess one of the ones, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I'm still kind of figuring out what and learning what like allyship really looks like, both in personal life as well as like in a professional setting. I do think supporting people individually and advocating for them and speaking up if there are things happening um, and asking them what do they need and how can how can I help um, or just showing up, right? Like sometimes you don't want to put the burden on them to say like, what do you need from me? But just actually showing up and trying to think creatively about ways to help them that kind of can come naturally to you organically. Yes. Yeah. I'm kind of still figuring out what, what it means in tech, you know, years ago, seeing people get passed over for promotions, for example, and just questioning practices and trying to suss out like what's really going on, even if it makes 
me feel uncomfortable. That's kind of the point, right? Is that like, this is, it's really pushing past levels of comfort to, to try to like do what's right and show up and do the work and learn about your own blind spots. And so I haven't really crystallized like what is allyship to me, but figuring it out every day. When you spoke up, did you speak up to HR or did you speak up in terms yeah. of like reaching out to that specific colleague and being like, hey, how are you doing? Both, all of the above, like mm-hmm. my own manager, leadership, executive leadership, HR, when there is HR, tech companies historically have a fun relationship with having HR folks. And and then yes, just like privately, like saying like, hi, I'm here. I saw this happen to you. I would like you to know that I am doing my best to try to support and just know that I have your back, right? I think that goes a really long way in just saying like, I see you. I think it's so personal, right? Like some people don't want to necessarily be singled out or they don't necessarily like want attention around things and some people do, right? And so just, you really have to make uh, calls on a case-by-case basis, which can make it very difficult. There's no like one playbook, right? For like how to show up in this way. And so that's why, yeah, it just really depends on the company, on the situation, on the environment, on how many other folks are are also supporting on whether or not that recognition is important. So kind of figuring all that out. Yeah, I'm still working on it as well. So important to elevate underrepresented voices, it opens so many doors to more perspectives and more experiences, ideas, creativity, and innovation that it it needs to just happen. (laughs) Yeah. And I think this is something that, I mean, let's take modern fertility as an example. The LGBTQ fertility journey is something that is, there's not a lot of education out there for folks in the community. There are lots of gaps in knowledge. There's lots of gaps in resources. It's a huge financial burden if you're in a same-sex relationship and want to get pregnant, right? And so last fall, Modern Fertility did a modern state of LGBTQ fertility where we surveyed members of the LGBTQ community about their experiences and really just surfaced more stories and data and trying to get into a point of helping people take action and problem solving. And that is... Yeah, I I think seeing that take shape and then watching our community members start an LGBTQ channel in our modern community and talk more about it and connect one-on-one. And I think only recently there was a comment thread over a hundred comments long on just talking about IUI and getting pregnant as a lesbian couple and just seeing these things happen and being able to help people connect the dots or connect with each other is super powerful. And I think you really have to be willing to go the extra mile to to elevate and, and to shine a light and a spotlight on some of these areas that are like under-researched or under-looked at or just, you know, not necessarily status quo. I felt really inspired by that because I personally have a lot of friends in same-sex relationships and seeing all that happen, I was able to empathize with them a lot more and really understand where they were coming from. And I know a lot of other people felt the same. I mean, that just warms my heart. That speaks a lot to companies like Modern Fertility who are putting in that effort, the thought, the time. And like you said, it's community driven first. What has your experience been like working for a predominantly male founded tech company versus working for a female founded, female led company? Such a great question. Modern Fertility is the first female founded, female led company that I have worked for other than tech ladies. And it's hard to even put into words just how much of an impact that has had on my career and personal experience at work coming from a marketing background, right? So largely when I've worked in tech, I'm on a marketing team that is mostly female. 
within an organization that is mostly male. And so that tension is also felt really strongly. I have worked with founders and executives who just completely are dismissive of marketing and of my experience, right? Especially, you know, when I was in my mid to late 20s, the sense that like, I just didn't know enough, or if I didn't understand technical aspects of the company, or if I wasn't an engineer, then I didn't wasn't really like, quote unquote, working in tech. Those are comments that have definitely been made to me. It's like, oh, yeah, you don't really work in tech because you're marketing. These are just small microaggressions that have happened at scale for a number of places I've worked and I've also observed in the industry. Just like the tone, the nature of collaboration, and also the willingness of of leadership to listen to employees. I think like right now where I'm at is unprecedented. I felt like there is a much stronger lead with empathy approach and really listening to the employees, really like taking feedback, giving feedback, the communication across the company, and just everyone really feeling like aligned and in lockstep and focused has been pretty amazing. Also, the fact that I work with a number of other moms. So that has historically been not necessarily my experience, right? So I've been at a startup where I wrote the maternity leave policy. And I've been in environments that were like, parent, friendly, but I wasn't necessarily working with other parents. And so just flexibility over my schedule, understanding from my coworkers around things like being late to a meeting because of a toddler tantrum in the morning. Those are just things that I feel like I can show up as my full self at work. I know that that is also a luxury, but I didn't think was possible. I always felt like there was like a part of me that I kind of had to hide or stand behind. You know, I had to be the professional version of myself. And I think just the permission to show up as my full self is really powerful. Yeah, let's uh, dig in a little bit. You create content through the lens of being a woman and also through the lens of being a mom. So what are your thoughts on how companies can help empower women and parents to succeed in the workplace? Yeah, I think flexibility is really key, especially now, right? Like we're all working from home. A lot of us don't have childcare for a long time, haven't had childcare options. And in the fall, we'll continue to not have childcare options. Not necessarily everybody's experience, but in many experiences, the mom is more of a primary caregiver. Actually, that's not been my personal experience. My husband is more of the domestic caregiver at home, which is really awesome. But yeah, I think flexibility is really important. I think having HR handbooks and specific guidelines around time off and working hours and respecting those people's schedules is really important. I think companies that have leadership that embody work-life balance is very hard to come by because especially in tech and in startups, growth is the top priority. And a lot of founders rightfully have a incredible hustle mindset. And it's very difficult to separate, you know, personal and professional work hours when you're in that. I think having other members of the team model work-life balance is really important. I know for me personally, my manager at Modern Fertility, who's also a co-founder, spends time outside and like takes walking meetings and signs offline and spends time with her family. And that just seeing that modeled is so important, right? The expectation of, you know, certain being online at certain work hours versus not is also a thing. Being really thoughtful around what is the parent experience like, especially the parent experience of like working from home, potentially with kids at home too, and trying to figure out like, how can we support these parents? If, you know, if the companies are later stage or if they have the resources and finances, thinking about childcare benefits on top of healthcare benefits is really important. And I know there's a number of companies in the childcare benefits space that are supporting parents, connecting them to experts or 
there's certain platforms. And so thinking about benefits holistically too, I don't know, I, I hope that we're moving into a world in which office perks like free beer or ping pong tables is going to go by the wayside and companies are going to spend more money on things like childcare benefits or babysitting benefits and credits and access to you know parent experts as part of it. Those are some things that I've been thinking about. Yeah, I just had Sheree Hager on the show. She's the founder of Salt, which creates period cups, and she's a mother to five girls. Oh my God. Yeah. In building her company, she and her team, who also have lots of women and lots of moms on the team, offer free preschool. Yeah. Oh God. I mean, if there is financial flexibility for something like that, that is really like the ultimate. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. That's a pretty incredible experience. I think. There's just so many small ways too that you can create an inclusive culture for parents. I worked for a company that had a happy hour, an all hands meeting in the office Thursdays at five o'clock. It wasn't mandatory. You didn't really have to come. But if you weren't there, there were things you missed. There were announcements that got missed. When they started this, they weren't recording them. And I couldn't attend those. I had to go pick up my daughter. And I couldn't understand why it was at that time. I couldn't understand why an important all hands meeting in which people would be presenting or executives would be speaking couldn't happen at noon or couldn't happen at three or couldn't happen you know, earlier in the day. It was like a time for the team to bond or the team to get the download on what was going on that week. I knew a couple other parents that worked there and it's just feeling of like, Nobody really cares if we're there or not. And they weren't, yeah. So that, that was just, those are little things, right? Like thinking about the time that you schedule a meeting. I've heard from people in the tech ladies community and even friends who say that they have meetings that are scheduled at 7 p.m. I can't imagine that. I worked for a company earlier in my career that provided dinner, but the dinner was only served at a certain time. <laughs> um, and it was like billed as this really great way to you know, connect with your coworkers. And it, of course, not mandatory at all, but it was just like, cool, that's a really amazing perk if you don't have a family to get home to. It, it just felt inaccessible. Those are just other things that kind of come up, not only about flexibility and schedule, but just thinking about the whole company culture from an inclusive standpoint that I think can make parents feel they want to stay and be able to retain parent talent. Yeah. It also gives you access to one of your teammates' times that you otherwise wouldn't get because the act of getting in your car, dropping your child off, going to pick up, you have to leave work. Or that if you have something like a benefit for childcare, then that time from the employee's perspective can be put back into the company and everyone wins in that way. There's yeah. this other thing you had mentioned with one of the co-founders from Modern Fertility. If you see your founder, your leader taking that time, takes such a relief off your shoulders. You're like, okay, I don't have to feel this way all the time, this tension that you might even put on yourself, but you're putting it on yourself because you're, it's, it's the environment that you're in. Yeah. And I was just thinking about like my experience going in for interviews at companies and I would really make note of, do they have a breastfeeding room? Do they have a specific space for moms and the companies that did really stand out? I'm going to get a little technical or you're going to get a little <laughs> technical uh -oh. if possible. <laughs> but did you know I'm not, I'm not a technical person because I only work in marketing. But you are. Um, <laughs> so writing content for startups, where do people start? Yeah, it's a great question. And writing is one of those things where it's like you can only improve by practice. And it's a lot of people will say, you can't be taught how to write. And I think you certainly can take classes and you can practice and practice and practice. And that's the most important thing for me is just getting stuff out there and learning what it's like to publish and write 
on the web. Writing my own blog and writing personally has really helped professionally. And so that's something I would say is if you are looking to build a portfolio, but you're not working for a company yet, or you're not writing for a company yet, or you have you're trying to break into it, build up your own portfolio. Anyone can start a medium account, right? And start blogging. It's really easy to do that. Even doing things like having a Twitter account where you're sharing your thoughts, there's really good writing on Twitter and on platforms like that. And it's interesting because content marketing is, it's this very strange hybrid of many different skill sets and areas within marketing and brand marketing. And it's like a combination of editorial and journalism and reporting, which is what I love about it. But it's also, if you're working at a startup, at least you need to understand how content is helping grow the business, having a growth marketing mindset. And there's also when you're writing for the web and putting content out there, understanding how search channels work and how distribution works and how you can use paid marketing to expand your reach and understanding targeting your audience and audience insights. And then how are you going to distribute your content? So if you need to understand email, you need to understand social media. To be honest, it's like a total juggling act where if you really feel like you have to have your hands in every single marketing function, which can really wonderful and expose you to like so many different aspects of a company. I mean, I've pulled my hair out all the time. It's a weird blend of art and science and if you over-index on one, then you're not going to get the full picture. So I will say that I started off my career really just focusing on the craft of writing and then realizing very quickly that good writing will take you pretty far, but definitely to go the extra mile and to really optimize what you're doing and make it super efficient and understand how it's helping the business's bottom line, which is like the question you're going to get if you're working in content at a company or a startup you really have to go deeper. And like, I had to become obsessed with analytics, right? I had to become super data driven and make all decisions based on data. I had to understand, okay, so we want to get people over to our blog and we want to write really educational content that people read and enjoy and feel like they've learned something. But then we also want to get those people to build a relationship with us and understand what our brand is and give us their email so that we can talk to them in their email. And those are all hooks that content helps support. And it just, yeah, I mean, it can go, it can spiral into a different, a million different directions. The way I'll summarize this the most is really if you're, if you're trying to break into content marketing and, or if you're just getting started, really understanding what are your business's goals and what is the perspective of how content will accomplish those? Because some companies have a really strong performance marketing channel and they really want to use content to just build brand warm fuzzies and thought leadership. And they're not actually going to assign business metrics to content. I've been in that specific environment before. But if you're in an environment in which if you're in a company where they want to use content to grow the business, then there's so many things that you need to think about when you're producing content. So very long-winded way of saying that it is a juggling it's, act. It is. Yeah, it's not easy. And I have, I will just say, I have questioned my career in content marketing. I've been like, why did I pick this career? It is super difficult. I just want to be, I just want to like, you know, I just want something that's like easy and or more narrow and doesn't require me to work across so many different things in my head at the same time. But I think it's weird. It's like the thing I hate about it is also the thing I love about it. I can't imagine being in a different field, although I sometimes daydream about switching jobs completely. I wonder if if you talk to anyone about their career, they'll say that. They'll say it's like a juggling act and that it's way more comprehensive than it seems. Maybe it's that too. So Conan has a podcast and he asked, I forgot, I think like JJ Abrams. And he's like, do you ever feel on some days, I don't know if I'm cut out to do this. Do I have the skills to, to 
to do this, let alone like the passion to do this. And you really made me laugh when you said that it's one of these things where it's like, but the thing I hate about it is also the thing I really love about it. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, listen, like if you're doing a podcast, there's this whole thing about content. I have this weird, like, I don't know, content is everything online. It's like media and design and words and video and podcast and the format of the content itself and the, and apps and everything is content, right? And so it's yeah. like when someone's like, oh, you do content. And I'm like, yeah, it means so many different things to so many different people. It's funny. I truly tried to explain it to my parents once and it didn't work out very well. I stumbled a lot and I think, <laughs> yeah, I think they were very confused too. Uh, do you have any, any warmups that you do or like if you're hitting a block in the middle of the day, do you have any personal methods to get started on that day's work? I don't really have a methodology, but I will say just not feeling precious about word choice at the very beginning of a writing project Mm -hmm. and just really brain dumping everything, blocking everything out and saying, okay, I'm going to write about this topic. Mm -hmm. What are all the questions I have? What are all the questions my target audience is going to have? What do I know about this? What do I feel about this? What do I feel like are, do I need to myth bust around this? Literally just getting it all out onto a Google doc and then figuring out like, okay, could I use any of this for an outline? And then doing desk research and seeing what has been said about this, what hasn't been said about this. When you put in these search terms for keywords online, what are people talking about with regards to this topic? Are there, is there recent news about this topic? And just getting all of the inspo all in one place too. And then you can start to do pattern recognition and say, okay, it's clear that when this topic is brought up, this is what most people have to say about, or these are frequently asked questions where content marketing really needs to shine is you're saying something new, you're adding value, and you're probably doing it in a way that hasn't really been done before or like is, is refreshing, right? That's what, when you're going to really hit the mark and maybe with like a tone that is different, that is your own brand tone or the company that you work you kind of have to combine what is your gut instinct approach for these things as well as research driven. Also, I will say just talking to people, it's very similar to like the community approach, which (laughs) I love to pull everything that I do in my life all into one place. Yeah. Just like texting people, talking to people. If you have friends, family, I can't tell you how many times I've texted, you know, writing about fertility for modern fertility. I've texted friends of mine and been like, if you were going to read an article about the survey, what would you want to know? What do you know about this? Engaging in those N of one exchanges anecdotally still helps inspire me and, and make me look outside myself because especially if you've been writing about something for a while, or if you've been working in an industry for a while, you are not necessarily the target audience anymore. So you need to look outside yourself. And that's where it's been really helpful. I mean, at Modern Fertility, we've done a lot of research on people who've read our blog, for example, and we've said, okay, hey, like for an Amazon gift card, so we were like paying people for their time, can we get on the phone with you and understand what are your questions? When you read this article, how did it make you feel? Did you learn something? What would you have wished you would have read? And just making sure you're really grounded in you know people's actual experiences because when you do content marketing, it's very much you're posting it out into this void and you don't see people reading it. You don't see people's reactions, right? This is very much for writing for a blog or for email marketing, right? When it's a podcast, there's a back and forth going on. So being able to see the reactions of folks while they read something, I've sent an article to a friend and then gotten on a call with her and been like, read this article on your phone and tell me what you're thinking out loud while you're reading this. Is something confusing? Did you stumble over something? And then use those insights to update your work. That's awesome. Thank you for going through all that. Last question about writing. You've heard a lot of stories. You wrote a lot of stories. What does every great story need? And what does every great 
storyteller need? Okay, really, really interesting. So right now, what does every great story need? I am convinced that the content and design partnership is more important than ever before to get people's attention, to get people to click on your work, to tell a story, to just visualize what you're doing. Because I, I'm a writer. I have no design background. It's actually been something that I really need to put on my list of credentials or certificates to get. I really would love to get more of a background in visual design and UX design because I feel like that's really missing from my work right now. I think that's a big thing for me is making sure that, especially if you're you know, creating content for a blog or for social media, the way it looks is as equally as important as the story that you're telling in the words on the page. And then I think what is in the skill set of a great storyteller is, well, first of all, how to ask good questions and how to interview people and how to ask for things and then how to take a step back and listen. Yeah, listening is is definitely key. And then I learned through doing these interviews that what's perceived, especially from an auditory standpoint, the silence can seem really long. Once you ask the question, you're waiting for someone to respond. But that part is so key because it allows everyone that room to think and to formulate a thought. And then like you mentioned earlier, I'll just think out loud, you know, because sometimes it's just the easiest way to to get out the most honest and clear thought. Yeah, that's been something that's interesting is just developing intuition as a storyteller, which I think just comes from practice and practice and practice. And obviously, yes, listening and then reading, right? I've gotten so much inspiration from being exposed to different types of storytelling, reading magazines, books, long form, short form, following certain people on Twitter who use Twitter as a platform for storytelling or Instagram visual storytelling. I have not unlock TikTok. I just, I don't know. I have a mental block around it. So, but I know that that's that's a storytelling platform for people. And so keeping up as much as you can ish with that. And then, yeah, letting that inspire too is, has been helpful. I think that's a really important point that you hit on. Let's jump to family real quick. There are a lot of moving pieces when you start a family, a lot of different people's schedules, including your child, who sometimes I feel have a more active social life than we do pre-COVID, obviously. Do you prioritize the different times for yourself, your family, your husband, your community? Yeah. So I'm just going to be totally honest. I have not done this very well. I sometimes feels like I'm living in this day to day. I know everyone is there right now, COVID times, but even before that and years ago, I took every day as it came and tried to figure out if I could steal away for 20 minutes to go on a walk. I did, but like I, it wasn't pre-planned. I am a planner. I am very type A around planning ahead, planning calendars and schedules. And I felt like the biggest thing I learned during maternity leave, even in pregnancy too, was just letting go of the plan. And so this has been something I've been working on a little bit more. <laughs> I literally just had a conversation with my husband about this yesterday where we were like, okay, we, we need to like sit down and plan our mornings a little bit better and figure out if we can switch off exercising and switch off breakfast routine. And because it feels like every day is a little chaotic as we just try to like step in and step on each other's toes. So I don't have a great playbook for this. I will say that I approached motherhood as, oh, now I need to be completely selfless mentality where I was just like, hey, now I'm a mom. I I matter less, right? I need to put my kid above myself in all forms. And that worked for about a month <laughs> until I broke down and I was just like, I, you know, and the guilt around putting yourself first or like taking time has been very difficult. And so I have slowly regained 
boundaries and space and trying to figure out what does it mean to prioritize myself? What does it mean to prioritize other people, my friends, work, my partnership above my child in certain times, right? And what are the trade-offs and like risks, rewards? I also have had a very big aha moment in therapy where we talked about the idea of quality time versus quantity of time spent with your kid. And that really helped me reframe certain things. So yeah, not a whole lot of advice other than if you're a mom or a new mom or new parent, be really kind to yourself and figuring out and finding your footing. Throw things against the wall, see if they stick. Try to find a routine. If you can't stick to it, then throw it out the window because that probably means it's not right. Trying to fit my old life and my old schedule into my growing family was impossible. And holding myself to the standards that I held myself to, like certain number of hours a week exercising, time to myself, time with friends, you know, that notion of being able to have it all or being able to not change your life didn't work for me. It could work for others and it might keep people sane. So it's like, if that works for you, great. What works for one person is not going to work for the other. And that's really hard to be surrounded by friends or people who may look like they are hitting certain milestones, keeping certain aspects of their life intact. Well, you can't is a very hard feeling, but it's how I felt. And I think just being open-minded has been important. Especially right now, so our our schedule is well <laughs> schedule. The word schedule is so triggering. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that. I was like, I'm gonna do air quotes right now. So uh, we have a parenting coach through a company called Trestle. It's a startup. And I told our coach that virtual schooling was just not working for my four-year-old. Where my two-year-old, we didn't even go there. For my four-year-old, it was really not working. I'd have to sit between the two kids. He was getting frustrated. Clearly, I was getting frustrated. I was like, sit up, look at the screen, no toys at the table. And he would be like, why isn't Miss So-and-so calling on me? I'm clearly raising my hand. Like you mentioned, I had this idea in my mind at the beginning of this global pandemic that I could do this. I've been a stay-at-home mom before. I can I can juggle the podcast and <laughs> and the kids, but it was no go. Talked to our coach and I just said, "What do you think about withdrawing him because it's just is not working for us?" I'm a planner as well. From the parenting aspect of it, I was just like, "Okay, I, these are my four things that I'll focus on." Mm-hmm. And then I'll figure out how to make it work for these two weeks. And then I'll move on. Yeah. Setting small goals and celebrating those wins is so huge right now. And letting go of what doesn't serve you. And I think it's so hard. I don't know. I used to follow all these Instagram accounts of when I became a mom, I was like, oh, I want to get into this mom group, parent group world. And so I was following these accounts and it just, you know, very far from reality for me. And Ayla's three, almost three years old. And so we virtual schooling was just never even a thing. It's not something we even considered. But I did see an uptick in all these homeschooling prep and schedules in early March and April when all this was happening. And it felt so aspirational. And I just, the pressure that we put on ourselves is immense. And it's really hard to block out the way other people are doing things or that aspirational aspect of social media in particular, letting go of what's not serving and realizing that it's okay to go against the grain, be in survival mode. And it's okay. Permission granted, right? Be in a chaos on a day-to-day basis and have that just be your day-to-day. Sometimes it's really hard to even establish routines and it's okay to just be in survival mode for a little while. I know that's something that I just had to embrace for a little while while I was navigating early motherhood. 
Yeah. Could you speak to the time that you had to go on interviews right after you had your daughter? Yeah. So it was kind of on me. It was my own personal choice to change jobs when I had a seven month old. I went on mat leave. I was able to take a really long mat leave in terms of working in in startups. In fact, I took five and a half months and came back to work. The scope of the job had shifted a little bit. The startup that I was working for had shifted in priorities and they were consumer startup that then went to B2B. And I was kind of recalibrating what I wanted to do, as I mentioned, with this lens and perspective of being a new parent and spending so much time away and figuring out like, is this really what I want? Is this really the career I want to go after? And I also think I was, there was this voice in the back of my head that was almost like, because you're a mom, you must push yourself. You don't fall behind. Go big in your career. These are the, you know, your early thirties are the time when you should be achieving certain milestones, going strong, escalating your career, moving up, right. And moving into manager roles. I don't think I recognized it at the time. I think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And I really do think that subconscious voice of just don't take a step back right now was the driving force behind it. I started pulling my resume together and reaching out to companies and interviewing at companies. It was interesting. And first I felt like I definitely had to hide the fact that I had a newborn slash five month old. I didn't really talk about it in the early stages of interviews. It was like something that I felt like I couldn't really own up to. I didn't ask about parental benefits. I didn't ask about how many parents worked on the team or any of that. I just was like, I don't want anyone discriminating against me because I'm a woman, the mom. And so that was one thing. I mentioned this before going into companies, I was breastfeeding at the time. And a lot of times when you interview on on site, it's like a four hour, five hour interview. I had to explain to recruiters, hey, I'm going to have to pump. Where is there a place for me to pump? Is there a room I can pump in? I went to one interview in which I had to go back to my car and, and I definitely wrote off that company. It was really challenging. I think onboarding at a new job was hard with a small child. Everything about it was difficult. And I felt like I had hyper laser focused on this notion of just career achievement without understanding how contextually it would fit into my life or if it was really serving me or if it was really what I wanted. It was more just like, this is what I think I need to do. So I'm just going to do it because I, I think this is what I should do. I hear I shouldn't take my foot off the gas, right? I think for a lot of people, that's wonderful and amazing. And I admire those people and it's super inspirational. For me, it led to burnout real quick. Yeah. When I became a mom and and I've been around kids my entire life, I've always wanted to become a mom. I thought I could do this. And then I had my <laughs> my first and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And it just, it changes you so much. And you're just kind of going through the day to day and then your kids get older. And then at some point for me, I felt like I did not feel worth it to myself what do I want for myself? And how do I challenge myself to grow? And like, I need to do this now. And I need to figure out what that's going to be. Just having like this identity crisis. Mm. You know, do you know what I mean? Oh, identity crisis was real. It was real. I relate so much to what you're saying about like, a sense of urgency to figure it all out. Yeah, like, I realized when people would ask me, so what do you do? I'd say, oh, I'm a stay at home mom. But I also volunteer for this organization that helps with mothers and, you know, and I was like, da, 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 da. And I just ramble all of these other things that I would do to justify what I felt like, not really for the people who asked me, but for myself, like I am a mom and I'm also X, Y, Z. Yeah. And I also, I think it's so interesting that you say that because I think for me, I almost had reverse. I was like, oh, 
Is it wrong that I don't want to be a stay-at-home mom? Is it wrong that mm-hmm. I'm not a stay-at-home mom right now? Is it wrong when I say I'm putting my career first and that I, I don't know, I, there was this moment, Ayla was four months old. I was on a walk in my neighborhood and I don't know, in line at a coffee shop or a bakery or something, struck up a conversation with a woman. She was like, asked me how old my daughter was. And she, you know, we were talking and I was like, oh yeah, she's going to start daycare next month. So that's going to be big for us. And she looked at me and she was just like, but she's so little still. How can you put her in daycare? She's so little. And I was very taken aback and very emotional about it. Obviously went home and was like, oh my God, am I making the wrong decision? Should I not be putting her in daycare? Like, is she too young for daycare? It just like caused me to question all these things. I was like, should I find a nanny? Oh my God, like, is it going to cause attachment issues if she's like with another provider 40 hours a week? And it just like, yeah, it really caused me to spiral on the decision. There's been so many comments like that, invited in conversation and also sometimes uninvited. Yeah. Yeah, figuring out like what priorities are and and the time you want to invest and who you're surrounding yourself with. Because I also realized at a certain point, I was not my best version of myself. And so when I got home from work and I was showing up for my daughter, I was not my best version of myself. That was painting my experience of motherhood, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, time goes by so quickly and they grow up really quickly. And I'm just like, oh gosh, I'm, I'm missing it. Am I missing her formative years? Should I be there more for her? Should I be spending more time with her? Should I, should she only be in preschool part time? There's these like flashing moments that like hit you really hard. You have to feel like grounded in my decisions, but they can really sweep you off your feet, especially on the good days when there's not back to back meltdowns. Yeah, for sure. And not only just coming to your daughter as the best version of yourself, but also realizing what the best version of your kids are. So our oldest, we didn't put him into preschool until about like two and a half, well, closer to three. Our second, they have completely different personalities, by the way. And I thought, okay, I get to spend one-on-one time because, you know, our second was born into already having a sibling. So he had obviously already less time with us Mm -hmm. one-on-one. And so I essentially like forcing him to spend time with me. But he's like a very independent thinker. He does not want help. He's like, I'll get to the solution. I know what the solution is. I'll get to it the way I want to get to it. And it took me, my husband, our pediatrician, like so many people to say, it's okay. I think he wants to go to school and Mm. he needs to go to school to thrive in the way that he as a person, as an individual person needs to thrive. And it took a lot of self-digging for me to be like, okay, I can, I understand. Like I need to not just be the best version of myself, but encourage him to be the best version of himself. And so that saying that out loud sounds like, oh, that's wonderful and that's simple. But there were many moments of crying in the shower. Or, oh, know, yeah. like, is I this mean, the right decision? I, I actually started going to therapy right around the time Ayla turned one. I've been to a therapist a few times, very like one-off for a few sessions, didn't really connect and then felt like I didn't really need it or is at certain decision points in my life. And I, I feel like I woke up one day and I was like, I need help with figuring this out. And I will just say therapy was the best decision I've made to carve out that space. I went weekly for a long time and then I switched to bi-weekly. I learned so much about just like how I think and approach the world and perspectives 
it has led to a lot of interesting insight and a lot of more informed decision-making for me as a mom, as a partner, as a friend, as a family member. I think recognizing when also it's too much for you too is, is really interesting. You, you say you have a parenting coach. I'm like, how do I get one of those? Now I need to, now I need to research that. Um, my it therapist is. who is wonderful is actually on mat leave right now. So I'm like, maybe I need, maybe I need a parenting coach. Yeah. I mean, everyone should have a therapist. I, I mean, I love the idea of it, but I really didn't think that I would rely on my parenting coach so much. Mm -hmm. Like we, especially right now, just with school and am I doing enough? Are they going to fall behind socially and academically? And, you know, are we setting them up for success? What does that all mean? It's just, it's really helpful to have one. So you work alongside yourself, who's inspiring and other women who are inspiring. You're creating content that empowers women to get information about their reproductive health and owning those decisions and having choices that impact their bodies and their future. You help connect women, trans, non-binary folks with the best opportunities in tech through Tech Ladies. What lessons have you learned so far that you hope to pass on to your daughter or to really anyone? It's a big question. So I think, I mean, this is just like more recently top of mind. And I know that there's just like a big spotlight on this right now. It should have been sooner in our the history of our society, but it's, it's having a moment and it should have a moment and it, should continue, it shouldn't just be a moment. It should be this ongoing thing. This idea of just what oppressive systems are at play in society in professional settings, in personal interactions, in our government, the notion of just like who is holding power and where privilege comes from. I think this is something that I've been thinking about a lot with being a mom and what do I want to teach my daughter because she is white and and she will come from a place of privilege and I want her to be an ally and understand how to navigate in this. And I think back to, you know, me really wanting to work in a place in an environment in which there's information asymmetry in healthcare. Um, I also come from, you know, working personal finance and just the how to be a good consumer, how to be vigilant and aware of systems at play and, and how to do research. A lot of what I'm doing is elevate people and, and how to inform and bring to light things that are not talked about a lot or that may be taboo. That's a big thing right now that is just very top of mind for me, both personally and in my life as a mom and also in my role at Modern Fertility and at Tech Ladies. I think also something that I worked through in therapy actually was just this idea of having a values-based decision-making framework for yourself and identifying what are your personal values and then how do you apply those to the relationships that you're building and your career and your family and just kind of figuring out what do you want in your core? How do you want people to recognize you? How do you want people to remember you? And then can you apply that to decisions you have to make? So for me, when I think about my own values, a lot of it was community oriented. I kind of come from a school of thought that family is chosen and your community can be your family and friends can be your family. And I think that community is so more important to me than ever before. And so thinking about, okay, like if this is important to me, then what? Then how do I spend my free time? Then how do I spend my volunteer time? Then how, what kind of company do I want to work for? Right. And so just putting kind of that first has been been really helpful. And I think from, from stemming from that is just the notion of, you know, how do you build empathy with others? How do you kind of like approach different people from different backgrounds and be kind to them and kind of like meet them where they are? I feel like this notion of like meeting people where they are comes up a lot in work. At Modern Fertility, we try to meet people where they are in terms of their fertility journey. And I've been thinking a lot about like, what does that mean 
to meet people where they are on a personal level too. And that's been something that I've talked about in therapy. I've talked about with my friends too. And, and something that I had to shift a little bit in my early twenties, a lot of it was just more like egocentric, like, okay, how do I operate in this world? What do I want and need? And I think expanding beyond that into the community, it's like, what is the world for me? And what do what can I contribute is the shift that, that I personally have made in my own journey. But yeah, it's ongoing, right? And I think transparency with my daughter has been really interesting. I've been trying to explain when I make mistakes, right? When I mess up, when I apologize to her a lot, <laughs> you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, sometimes I find myself apologizing to her for something very complicated. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of a hard thing to explain why I'm apologizing to you about this. But I really want her to remember me as her mom being human and and making mistakes. Yeah. And that it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be on this like lifelong journey of learning and of stumbling through it. It's hard. It's very bumpy um, and uncomfortable. It's taken me 34 years to learn how to say I'm sorry or say I don't know how to do this or say, oh, I did this wrong or I, yeah, I messed it up without being defensive. And that is just like a personal thing that I'm kind of going through. It's taking me 34 years too. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting how that works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They need like, you know, they need like college classes and and humbleness and like whatever. (laughs) Although I don't know, when I was 18, I would have gone in one ear and out the other. I was not ready to learn that I could mess up. I think when you're in an environment in which you're always expected to achieve and be perfect and like be super Mm -hmm. buttoned up, and if you're not, then you're not going to get ahead. Or if you're not, then you're really hard on yourself. You know, I think it's really challenging, right? It's hard to release yourself of that burden. Yeah. I think that you're setting a great, honestly, example for your daughter and that she'll emulate these things that you're showing her. Our pediatrician said for our four-year-old, oh, now's the time actually to talk to him about more complex things. Like sometimes the right decision is the hardest decision. And I remember being in the room being like, oh, I don't, can I explain that? Do I have enough experience, you know, to have this conversation? She's like, but they are, they are observing you in this way. Mm -hmm. And so if you actually communicate this to him, he'll start to understand. I cannot tell you, oh my God, how many times I have read a parenting book or or advice and been like, oh, I need to learn this myself. I just feel like that's one of the beauties of being a parent in figuring out how humans develop and how their mind develops and watching a child learn about the world and develop really get this chance to reset your own thinking which has been so helpful for me. And I just, yeah, I just can't tell you how many times I was reading this book called The Whole Brain Child and they were talking about like the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. And I was like, this is so helpful for me. Like I'm learning yes. about this. Um, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. been, it's been my go-to. So you're talking about being a lifelong learner. How do you retain all the information that you learn through all the different mediums that you're using? Do you write things down? Or do you just have a good memory? Uh, (laughs) I have a pretty good memory. It's been very fuzzy over the past few years with like lack of sleep. And I don't know, is there such a thing as like COVID fog? I feel like since every day feels the same, I don't even remember what day it is. But I start journals and then I abandon them. I can't, even though I love writing, I, I just like can't stick with the routine of it. I get a lot out of conversations like this, which I obviously am not having on a 
day to day or even week to week or month to month basis. But just, yeah, I get a lot out of going really deep with friends and recounting experiences and connecting in that way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, gosh, it's a great question. I probably need to develop a better ritual around it. When it comes to professional, I'm a little bit more buttoned up. I have an Evernote account and Google Docs, and I am a very avid note taker in meetings of really try to capture things that I'm learning, you know, summarize what I did each week and do that. But in personal stuff, less so. Well, and it's a lot because you're doing all that at work. And so there's just this thing where it's like, uh, do I, it's like kind of like Zoom burnout, right? Like, do I want to like take out another thing and organize my personal thoughts? I don't know. At least that, that's it for me as I'm going to show you my journals in which I also have like six right now, different <laughs> ones. Going I love on. them. Oh, I love that one. That's like really colorful. Yeah. I target. I swear I have like a box of journals that have 25 pages written in them. And then I'm like, oh, and then when I want to start a new journal, I like want a new one. I don't want to like go to the old one. Yeah. I don't want to rip pages out. And it's, yeah. I'm I like to wrap up episodes with a rapid fire. What do you think? I'm ready. Okay. Are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. Which would be your ideal office view? A cityscape, the mountains, or the beach? Mountains. What is the very first thing you do when you're alone? Alone? Oh my gosh. I can't remember the last time I was alone. Oh my gosh, this is so sad. When was I alone last? Oh my God. I don't know. I, if I'm alone in my house, I talk to my cats, which is something I, I mean, I probably do even when I'm not alone. Alone. I don't know what it's like to be alone. You're like, that sounds so amazing. Um, what show have you binge watched and loved? Oh, okay. Well, my latest binge watch love is This May Destroy You. Highly recommend. It's really intense, beautiful, such an important show. Just just really well done. And I just can't look away. It's not finished yet. And I just like crave more every time I watch it. Other shows that I've binged a little bit more obsessively slash like embarrassingly binged has been like Veep. Oh my gosh. I just love everything about Veep. Although it's like very close to reality. So it's like sometimes I watch it. And I'm too like, this, close. This is this. It's right too close to home. But I think I watched all six seasons of it in like a three week period or something very crazy. Yeah. Great, great writing, but too real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a book that you have gifted the most or revisit often. Oh, this is easy for me. It's Haruki Murakami's Wind Up Bird Chronicles. So Haruki Murakami is one of my favorite authors. He's Japanese and his books are all just so incredible, I kind of have this like fantastical element to them. Very, yeah, just very, really unique writing style. And The Wind Up Bird Chronicles is my favorite book, his writing. And I have gifted it to a couple people. And I feel like every time I've read it and reread it, I've probably read it like six or seven times. I get something else out of it. I will caveat that by saying I have not read a book end to end, like physically read in a little while. But <laughs> yeah, Ruki Murakami, everyone should go read his work. I'll add it to the show notes. Three words you would use to describe your journey through motherhood. Talk about silence. Um, <laughs> I would say intense love. That's two, but maybe it's one if there's a hyphen. Humbling and playful. I think I really discovered this playful nature to myself as part of my experience of motherhood. Yeah, I might have to rephrase this question and put it into the rest of the podcast because... 
I think I've stumped moms every time with the question, so it's not so rapid fire. Come on, get back uh, to me in the prep notes. I, I feel know, like I should I have prepped on that. <laughs> I should have done that. Well, lesson learned. It's okay. I'm gonna um, come back. I'm gonna think on it, and then I'll just like I'll just text you like in three days, and you can like edit voice over it in. <laughs> in the moments where you're feeling nervous or fearful, what are some things you do or say to yourself to calm down those nerves? Let's see. I've definitely said to myself or repeated this to myself that I'm strong. The word strong, I think, is something that's of a personal mantra um, and just understanding like what strength means to me. But yeah, like you're strong is something that I've definitely said to myself. Deep breaths. I don't really do a meditation, but breathing and just taking a deep breath and looking up at the sky and at something peaceful and calming is also very helpful. What have other women said to you or done to empower you? Telling me that they see work that I'm doing and just observe and recognizing small details of work that I've done and telling me about it or recounting how it made them feel has been huge. One of my coworkers at Modern Fertility, Reina, she wrote me an email once which was just calling out like a couple specific things that I had not thought twice about of just things I had done or feedback I've given or word choice I had and how much of an impact it made. And it was so simple and went so far. And it had been in a week where I just felt like the world was spinning and I was just really all over the place. And it just really centered me and made me cry, uh, tears of joy. And I was just the small details, right? Recognizing the small details and supporting those has been really big for me. That's so nice. Women empowering women. Last question. It's not a rapid fire, but just last question. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listener out there that is building something, the woman or mom that's thinking about building something one day? Yeah, I think, you know, distilling everything that we've been talking about here is just reach out, listen to people, get feedback early and often, bounce ideas off of people. Don't be afraid to ask people if they have time to spare to like give you feedback, especially if you can support them even in small ways, like a $5 Amazon gift card or like a coffee card, a Starbucks or something like really small, scrappy ways just to show appreciation. I personally think that feedback is the best way to improve your work and and to build something and just understanding what do people need? And will you be able to, I said this before, meet them where they are. And I think also just get your idea out there and you never really know what's going to happen until it's out there. I think some people really want to incubate and perfect and polish and polish. It's scary, right? And it's scary to be vulnerable and know that there's going to be people who are negative and who criticize and who tear it down and who poke holes in it, right? But finding the people who will adopt or finding the people who it does resonate with and then doubling down on those people is really, is going to be really important. And yeah, and like kind of just figuring out owning your voice in all of this too, is I think just very difficult thing to do. But just like figuring out what that means for you, I think is, is, is interesting because I've definitely been that person who replays things I've said in the past and like beats myself up about things I could have done better, but just trying to absolve yourself of that and just look ahead and own the decisions that you're making, whether they're the right decisions or, or not the right decisions at the time and just learning from them. Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, it's hard, but at least you're doing it, you know? Yeah. Right now, nothing feels easy. So it's like, all right, embrace that and go with it. I know that so many people are in that same position and that you can learn from them, um, mm-hmm. which is why I love what you're doing and what you're building and the chance to, to share here on the podcast. Hannah, thank you so much for being on the show. I had such a fantastic time chatting with you and learning from you today. Thank you for your vulnerability, your openness, and for inspiring everyone 
to be curious, to be willing to change and improve and continue learning and growing. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to chat with you today too. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. Links to everything we discussed are in the show notes. You can follow Hannah Levy on Twitter at H-N-N-H-L-V-Y. Again, that's H-N-N-H-L-V-Y. To learn more about Modern Fertility, visit modernfertility.com. That's modern, F-E-R-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. And to learn more about tech ladies, visit hiretechladies.com. That's H-I-R-E-T-E-C-H ladies.com. And if you have a moment, I would love and really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us to get more amazing guests on the show and grow the podcast. You can find more interviews with inspirational moms building inspirational things on momswhobuild.com. Until next time, keep building what brings you joy.